0: This is Revelations Radio News with Andrew Hoffman
1: and Tim Kilkenny on the Revelations Radio Network.
2: podcasting to you from the seaside town of Edmonds, Washington, where I am not happy about the current Seahawks, Seattle Seahawks status. My name is Tim Kilkenny.
3: And in Hood River, Oregon, where my now diehard Seahawks fan wife is having a hard time recovering, I'm Andrew Hoffman.
2: We both now all of a sudden have diehard Seahawk fan, or Seahawk wives as fans. So that's interesting. <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be unfortunate to <laughs> teach them about the uh, Seattle Seahawks as they head into uh, what looks like, I don't know, an interesting period of time. <laughs> I, I saw there some was a, forums uh, out there, people saying stuff like, "Oh no, the Seattle Seahawks from the '90s are back," and. And then, uh, somebody else said, well, does that mean we get the Mariners from the nineties back? And then the other, (laughs) the other guy was like, supersonics from the nineties question mark. (laughs) So (laughs) anyway. Uh,
3: well, uh, yeah, there's, uh, there was a commercial with Ron Rivera, right? Yep. And. My wife says, oh, now we have to watch a commercial with this guy in it? And I'm like, wait a second, you recognize opposing teams' coaches now? <laughs> Just... <laughs> uh, so... I'm
2: familiar with that feeling, my friend. Uh, yeah, quickly, she's... Uh, quickly,
3: quickly uh, starting to... Uh... She's gone from never having watched a football game to... We'll not miss a
2: Seahawks game. The NFL's killing he,
3: it by he, by trying to attract women. I mean they I don't know how they
2: did it, but they've done it. Yeah. It's been a it's been an interesting ride. My wife turned to me the other day and said something like Well, I think it was the Bengals game. She goes those Bengals are supposedly pretty good, but I heard they haven't really played anybody and I'm just like what? <laughs> 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 who who huh? Anyway, there's been a lot of news happening. I took last week off. Just uh, wanted to spend some time with the wife. And uh, in that time, it seems like... uh, Oh, I got to share this with you. I, I meant to text it to you. I meant to email it to you. It's probably better I share it with you in the show. In my neighborhood. Count them. One, two, three. Bernie Sanders yardsticks. Little, you know, yard signs. Bernie Sanders yard signs. And was actually at the, uh, coffee shop, local coffee shop here, and, uh, they were, uh, talking together, and this, uh, a couple of guys talking together, one of the employees and one of the, uh, patrons there getting his coffee, hanging out, said, uh, yeah, the news sites are all saying that Hillary won, but I think most people on the internet and most of everybody I talk to agrees that Bernie won, you know, I think it's pretty exciting, so, that's the, uh, It's the uh, temperature up up in this neck of the woods, and I just wanted to let you know that we are feeling
3: the burn. Uh, For people out there that like to uh, purchase domain names, I would recommend grabbing (laughs) burnedout.com.
2: Maybe I should get burnedout.com, redirect it to Revelations Radio News. I'm going to go do it right now. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. We got. We got some donation uh, money. We'll go. We'll go get. What are we getting here? Burnedout.com. Yeah, but
3: yeah. B e e yeah. Yeah. B e r n e d o u t dot com. Burnedout.com. There you go. Because that's the. That's where. Feel the burn ends up is at burned out.
2: Oh, after you feel the burn, you get burned out. Yeah.
3: If he wins.
2: But we're already a socialist nation, so it's not a big deal.
3: (laughs) Well, (laughs) although I will say, because pretty much what I hope for is just total gridlock. Mm -hmm. And Bernie Sanders and a Republican-controlled House and Senate might be far enough apart to create total gridlock, which would be amazing. the best thing you can hope for is that government does nothing.
2: B-E-R-N-E-D-O-U-T dot com.
3: B-E-R-N-E-D-O-U-T dot com. Yep. Burn
2: that. 1069. We're buying it right now. We'll redirect <laughs> it to Revelations Radio News. Until we
3: get an offer we can't refuse. <laughs> uh, Yeah. So,
2: I didn't watch the debates. Did you? Uh,
3: no, no. I I had recorded the Republican debate way back in the day and got through about ten minutes of it. I did not watch any of the Democratic debate.
2: FeelTheBurn.co.uk is also available. Nah, we'll move on. Nah, we'll just get this one. We got the who is guard. All right, we're good. We'll just—I'll just—I'll uh, go in there and redirect it to revelationsradio.news.com. So there you go. Sweet. Live on the air. So where Start. do you want to go?
3: Um. Well, I guess we'll stay on phony elections.
2: Yeah, phony elections. Let's do it. Okay. Hillary Clinton is amazing <laughs> uh, okay
3: this comes from zero hedge and it's a it's a, I got a two-part here so prime minister-elect of us ally Canada waste no time tells Obama that he will withdraw fighter jets from Syria and Iraq with the ink still damp on voter slips Newly elected Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau wasted no time in fulfilling the first of his liberal hope and change promises. As AFP reports, hours after defeating Stephen Harper, Trudeau has told US President Obama that he will withdraw Canadian fighter jets from Syria and Iraq, though giving no timeline. So far the US response is mutedly diplomatic but tinged with guilt. We have stood shoulder to shoulder with Canadian Armed Forces in Iraq and Afghanistan from the US state department. Okay. Um, So keep that in mind. And next story, also in the Canadian election, uh, from the one and only Babe Ruth, the podcasting documentary filmmaker and article writer, James Corbett. And for some reason, nothing's working. What's going on? All right. Let me try this again. Okay. And the winner of the Canadian election is dot dot dot. The Corbett report. Yes. Sorry. So, uh, and the results of the hotly contested Canadian election are in, even as we speak. Canadians are digesting the news that they have a different governing party right now. Or maybe the same one. Or maybe it's a minority government and we're waiting to see what coalition will be constructed. Or maybe the results aren't in yet. Or maybe it's too close to call. Or maybe something happened and the vote was postponed. Okay, okay, I'll admit it. I haven't actually looked at the election results yet. Don't worry, I will. Once I swallow down the bile and plug my nose and put on my propaganda-deflecting goggles... But even so, I can tell you exactly how the new or same old government is going to affect the status quo in Canada. It isn't. I say this because my thesis is that no one will ever vote their way to freedom. Not true freedom, anyway. Oh, sure, there will be cosmetic changes here and there. There will be some political football issues uh, on which there is some leeway for difference. But if you're hoping for change through the ballot box, well, I think you know how the script goes by now. And yet people still turn out to the polls in droves to cast their ballots. Talk about cognitive dissonance. Of course, I claim no originality for my thesis. It's certainly been articulated well enough by others in the past. There is the famed 19th century American author Henry David Thoreau in his 1849 classic on civil disobedience. He excoriates the patrons of virtue who give only a cheap vote to ease their conscience that they are doing something about the problems of the world. He goes on to say, all voting is a sort of gaming, like checkers or backgammon, with a slight moral tinge to it, playing with right and wrong, with moral questions, and betting naturally accompanies it. The character of the voters is not staked. I cast my vote, perchance, as I think right, but I am not vitally concerned that the right should prevail. I am willing to leave it to the majority. Its obligation, therefore, never exceeds that of expediency. There was the... Also, the turn of the 20th century anarchist Emma Goldman, who is supposed to have come up with the famous turn of phrase, If voting changed anything, they'd make it illegal. Regardless of whether or not she really did coin that phrase, she certainly had no love for voting or the political process as it has been presented to the masses. In Anarchism What It Really Stands For, she writes, One has but to bear in mind the process of politics to realize that its path of good intentions is full of pitfalls. Wire-pulling, intriguing, flattering, lying, cheating, in fact chicanery of every description, whereby the political aspirant can achieve success. Added to that is a complete demoralization of character and conviction, until nothing is left that would make one hope for anything from such a human derelict. Time and time again people were foolish enough to trust, believe, and support with their last farthing aspiring politicians, only to find themselves betrayed and cheated." Or there's Carol Quigley, the distinguished Georgetown professor and Bill Clinton's mentor who wrote the secret history of a powerful, hidden Anglo-American establishment. As he revealed in Tragedy and Hope, the shifting of the political pendulum from left to right through the election cycles only serves to fool the masses into believing they actually have control over the course their country is taking. The chief problem of American political life for a long time has been how to make the two congressional parties more national and more international. The argument that the two parties should represent opposed ideals and policies, one perhaps of the right and the other of the left, is a foolish idea acceptable only to doctrinaire and academic thinkers. Instead, the two parties should be almost identical so that the American people can throw the rascals out at any election without leading to any profound or extensive shifts in policy. And that is what we have, folks. Two almost identical parties. um, Or as uh, well, I'll let people go to the com and read the rest of the article for themselves. But you get the idea. And he makes the following predictions. No matter who is elected, Canada will still continue to support American aggression in theaters around the world, including Syria. No matter who is elected, the Prime Minister will be a staunch ally of Israel and will use every opportunity to stress just how important the Israeli relationship is is to the interest of Canada.
2: Hey, before we move on to the Syria one, they're pulling their jets out. What are we?
3: What well, that, that's, why, that's why I put those together. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, three, no matter who is elected, the Bank of Canada will continue to allow private banks to create the vast majority of the money supply as interest-bearing debt instruments. Despite the Bank of Canada's history of an ability to fund public financing with interest-free credit, um, number four, no matter who is elected, the Canadian government will continue to parrot the official line on 9-11 in the war on terror. Number five, the new prime minister will not repeal Bill C-51. Six, the new prime minister will sign off on the TPP. Well, there we go, some predictions. Now let's see how things turn out under whomever won. Okay, I'll bite. I just checked the results. It looks like the liberals have won a majority and Trudeau is the next prime minister. And that fact doesn't change one word of what I've written in this article. And uh, I will tell you this: my money's on James Corbett being right, and he's not pulling any jets out. This is this is a uh, well. And how, how many jets does Canada yeah, have that's over a, there that's anyway? The funny part
2: is they they tell two guys that they can come home, and they've made a huge political statement. <laughs>
3: Well, and I don't even think they'll do that. So I think it's just like um, Obama closing Guantanamo. It's his first thing he's going to do. Oh, but he
2: hasn't done it, so... And he hasn't done it. He promises to, though. Yeah.
3: Cool. Well, I guess we'll look forward to that. So, a little Canadian election news. And uh, wasn't his dad Prime Minister before...
2: I feel that Trudeau name is super familiar. I don't know from where I know. We it.
3: should, Canadians are be like, oh, you guys are idiots, but all right. We do our best. Yeah. He's uh, our number two country. Speaking of socialism, Bernie Sanders, Canada, um, and Obamacare. We've got some interesting news today, Tim. Right. The, uh... The insurance provider that I have through work is going out of business. Interesting. Oh, wow. Uh, Health Republic of Oregon was one of the companies um, that was started basically because of Obamacare. And it's a a nonprofit uh, co op. And the idea was um, there would be federal support to get these started as an alternative to the you know, the big insurance companies. Right. And, um, you know, I mean, turns out they, they, are getting they, uh, pushed out. Well, here, here's what happened. So they, um, and it, I think it was a, I don't blame my company for selecting them. Like they, uh, um, have a deal for alternative health care. You know, you pay 20, a $25 copay for pretty much anything you want. I mean, um, uh, Acupuncture, naturopath, whatever, whatever you're into there. Um, so that's kind of a cool feature, not being all big pharma all the time. But uh, the part of Obamacare said if um, if you spend more on claims than you take in, the uh, federal government will help make up the difference. In fact, we talked about this on our on our show right um, so Health Republic is like, well we can give up pl- pretty low rates you know and and we'll try to um, and you know we'll pay claims and we'll uh, if it works out that we're we're not getting all our money back then the federal government will make it whole and that'll be great because uh, we're nonprofit anyway okay uh, well what the federal government apparently, has decided that they meant by will help uh, is they will pay 12 percent of the amount. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a difference of about 20 million dollars, and that put uh, Health Republic, at least in Oregon, out of business. So
2: almost like it was planned.
3: Yeah. So we'll be Not back the- with some yeah some mega like insurance corporation. Yeah, that Moda Health. has that has figured out how to uh, avoid paying claims.
2: There you go.
3: It's like speaking
2: the. Speaking of which, we actually uh, speaking of naturopaths and insurance companies, my wife and I see a naturopath, and it was recommended that she take a, uh, a food allergy test, and uh, we were told unfortunately it's five hundred dollars to get the test taken, and that's your copay. Um, and so that was what one nature naturopath said. And then we went to another naturopath who said, yes, it's that it is $500 to, to pay for the, uh, food allergy test. But that's only if you tell them that you have insurance. If you tell them you don't have insurance, it's 125. Oh, nice. (laughs) They're just, uh, gouging the insurance company's money because that's how much they can get.
3: Hmm. Yeah, which is it's it's a self feeding system, right? I mean, you, you couldn't charge thirty thousand dollars for minor surgery without insurance. Like if people still paid for actual healthcare, the cost would be much lower. Just like college colleges couldn't charge fifty thousand a year tuition if uh people had to actually pay for it themselves. Exactly. So no. Whenever the government gets involved to make something um, less expensive, it ends up making it more expensive.
2: Absolutely. Speaking of vaccines in the medical industry, $61 million settlement issued for child vaccine injury. This is from the 6th of October. Stunning $61 million settlement has been reached as the result of the child being injured by a vaccine and what can only amount to be a groundbreaking lawsuit result. Many people this morning have a feeling that a tide has turned somewhat. The award was negotiated by attorneys at Maglio, Christopher, and Toll in Pennsylvania. The U.S. Federal Vaccine Court awarded $61 million settlement for a child who suffered a severe adverse reaction after immunization. Vaccine attorneys at the law firm of Maglio, Christopher, and Toll believe that the case was clearly a result of a reaction of the DTaP, Immunization. Court records show that only hours after the baby received a routine diphtheria, tetanus, and accellular pertussis uh, vaccination, she started to have seizures, abnormal breathing, irregular heartbeats, and at 6.05 a.m. the next morning, her heart stopped completely. Ugh. Oh, it took six minutes to revive... Uh, took six minutes of CPR to revive her. She has spent the last six years of her life suffering from cognitive delays and cerebral palsy and a seizure disorder. Family's attorney says its sixty one uh, million dollar award will pay for the child's around the clock medical care for the rest of her life. Um, did you throw this one in here?
3: Yep, I did.
2: Okay, sorry. I didn't mean, to just under there.
3: Well, no, just uh, it's happening. Uh, literally billions of dollars have been paid out for vaccine damage.
2: Right. And there's been billions of dollars set aside for it
3: as well. Yeah. And this is, uh, but I notice. well, let's see, I don't know if they had, do they have the child's name in there, but, but, uh, with the vaccine court, so your kid gets hurt by a vaccine You can't sue the company directly if it's on the list of recommended vaccines. You go and you have to sue in this, um, you know, vaccine injury court. And if you win, you get money. But to get the money, you have to sign um, non-disclosure and say that you will not talk to the media about what happened to your child.
2: And not to mention you have to have a kid that has health problems for the rest of their lives.
3: Well, I'm, and just remember that, I mean, the default position is that the vaccine didn't cause it. Right. So this is not all the vaccine damage that's being done. It's all the vaccine damage that absolutely can't be pinned on anything else. They can't come up with any other excuse. Have to admit it's the vaccine and yeah, billions of dollars, but it's hush money. So that's, that's why you're still a conspiracy theorist if you say, well, vaccines hurt people. Oh, Donald Trump he's so crazy. He says vaccines can cause autism. Yeah.
2: Speaking of so. conspiracy theories about vaccines, should we play the live testimony from the Senate hearing? Sure. Uh, this was lifted from, uh, I got this from No Agenda Podcast, uh, they played it. I thought it was too amazing to not uh, listen to and discuss in its entirety here on our
0: show. so uh, it's about five minutes long, so here we go. I arrived today on matters of research and scientific integrity. Uh, to begin with, I am absolutely, resolutely pro-vaccine. Advancements in medical immunization have saved countless lives and greatly benefited public health. That being said, It's troubling to me that in a recent Senate hearing on childhood vaccinations, it was never mentioned that our government has paid out over $3 billion through a vaccine injury compensation program for children who have been injured by vaccinations. Regardless of the subject matter, parents making decisions about their children's health deserve to have the best information available to them. They should be able to count on federal agencies to tell them the truth. For these reasons, I bring the following matter to the House floor. In August 2014, Dr. William Thompson, a senior scientist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, worked with a whistleblower attorney to provide my office with documents related to a 2004 CDC study that examined the possibility of a relationship between mumps, measles, rubella, vaccines, and autism. In a statement released in August 2014, Dr. Thompson stated, I regret that my co-authors and I omitted, omitted statistically significant information in our 2004 article published in the Journal of Pediatrics. End quote. Mr. Speaker, I respectfully request the following excerpts from the statement written by Dr. Thompson be entered into the record. Now quoting Dr. Thompson. My primary job duties while working in the immunization safety branch from 2000 to 06 were to lead or co-lead three major vaccine safety studies. The MADDSP MMR autism cases control study was being carried out in response to the Wakefield Lancet study that suggested an association between the MMR vaccine and an autism-like health outcome. There were several major concerns among scientists and consumer advocates outside the CDC in the fall of 2000 regarding the execution of the Verstraten study. One of the important goals that was determined up front in the spring of 01, before any of these studies started was to have all three protocols vetted outside the CDC prior to the start of the analyses so that consumer advocates could not claim that we were presenting analyses that suited our own goals and biases. We hypothesized that if we found statistically significant effects at either 18- or 36-month thresholds, we would conclude that vaccinating children early with MMR vaccine could lead to autism-like characteristics or features. We all met and finalized a study protocol and analysis plan. The goal was to not deviate from the analysis plan to avoid the debacle that occurred with the Verstraten thimerosal study published in Pediatrics in 03. At the September 5th meeting, we discussed in detail how to code race for both the sample and the birth certificate sample. At the bottom of Table 7, it also shows that for the non-birth certificate sample, the adjusted race effect, statistical significance, was huge. All the authors and I met and decided sometime between August and September 2002 not to report any race effects for the paper. Sometime soon after the meeting, we decided to exclude reporting any race effects. The co-authors scheduled a meeting to destroy documents related to the study. The remaining four co-authors all met and brought a big garbage can into the meeting room and reviewed and went through all the hard copy documents that we had thought we should discard and put them in a huge garbage can. However, because I assumed it was illegal and would violate both FOIA and DOJ requests, I kept hard copies of all documents in my office and I retained all associated computer files. I believe we intentionally withheld controversial findings from the final draft of the pediatrics paper." End of quote of of the doctor. Mr. Speaker, I believe it's our duty to ensure that the documents Dr. Thompson provided are not not ignored. Uh, Therefore, I will provide them to members of Congress and the House committees upon request. Uh, Considering the nature of the whistleblowers' documents, as well as the involvement of the CDC, a hearing and a thorough investigation is warranted. Uh, So I ask, uh, Mr. Speaker, I, I beg, I implore. Uh, my colleagues on the Appropriations Committees, to please, please take such action.
2: What a conspiracy theorist that guy is.
3: I don't know why you have to, like, declare yourself pro-vaccine. Before you start? Like, yeah. Before we start, I just want to let you know. Hey, I just want to let you know that I'm anti-vaccine <laughs> and actually anti-all eugen- mass eugenics programs, so... That's
2: that's how you started off, huh?
3: Yeah, that's how I would start it off. And I had received no money from Big Pharma. But, uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, actually declared herself an enemy of Big Pharma. How so? Well, she, she said, because they asked that. Well, can you believe official from the CDC
2: uh, here was actually, uh, burning, uh, p- papers in a trash can about the, uh, the, uh, autism rates and vaccines.
3: Yes, I can <laughs> believe that.
2: Therefore no comment and moving right along.
3: Well, um,
2: I mean, it's entered in the congressional, you know, in a congressional hearing, this is going to be recorded and, you know, I just think that's a good, good one for everybody to stick this, put, uh, to put in their wheelhouse. The next time someone calls them a crackpot. Um, they can refer to a Senate hearing in which uh, it was determined that there are uh, doctors out there who have a, uh, a vested interest, uh, both research-based and uh, investigative-based, uh, in making sure that uh, the, well, the truth about this stuff doesn't get out.
3: The doctor who was quoted there also, um, I don't know if he testified in front of Congress or what it was exactly, but that was um, big news and in the non-mainstream media a few months ago. So, uh, I think we talked about it on our show or we just had stories about it and didn't talk about it Um. because we missed doing a show. But yeah, he's, uh, you know, and there've been other, um, I think former Congress people that were on committees that came out afterwards and said, you know, after, you know, I'm not allowed to say what was said, but I wouldn't give my kid vaccines after you know, stuff like that. So it's So If you actually look into it, you see vaccines, um, lots of them don't work at all, see the flu shot, um, and all of them have some serious dangers to them, even if they don't you know force your kid to require around the clock medical care for the rest of their life um i think it's it's screwing up kids immune systems left and right there's a reason why there's food allergies all over the place and i think it's vaccines and gmos so that's um and none of that gets um i don't think anyone's paying out uh Vaccine damage for any of those effects. And I think there's, there's a lot of unreported vaccine effects out there. Put it that way. Not necessarily because the parents aren't reporting it, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't make it past the wall of vaccines are safe. Um, if your child was hurt, it's just a coincidence. Oh, it could be, um, maybe you were shaking your baby maybe that's why their brains fold up. Yeah, yeah. yeah
2: the uh I, I think i must have shared this but back when i was in uh school a few years ago uh the one of the professors one of the teachers there caught the swine flu uh within like 24 hours after getting the uh the swine flu shot and uh, the doctors told him that you know It happened so fast that it's very likely that he had already had the swine flu when he got the vaccine. It was already too late, and that's that's what he said. That's what his official official uh, uh, explanation for what happened was. But uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, He was sixty something years old, and I mean, it, it hit him hard. I mean, he he was in the hospital for
1: a while.
3: Yeah. So, just a coincidence. Well, I mean, that's how you get flu season geared up every year. You give a bunch of people the flu shot and use that nose spray thing so they don't have to have the needle. But that's all live virus stuff. So, and then you come out at the end of the year and you said, "Well, we did, you know, it didn't really work. We didn't have the right, uh, you know, we guessed wrong on what the exact virus would be. But here, take your flu shot for this year." You go to these and. And it, it kills me that they're still advertising for flu shots in the summer.
2: Yeah, I, I was about to mention that. So, like, any drugstore you go to, there's like, uh, there's like, like point of sale vaccine advertisements. So, I mean, it's like, what? Who? Who's who's, who's? who's? like? Okay, I got my batteries. You know, I got some Easter candy for this Sunday. Oh, vac- I totally need to get my vaccine. Let's let's do it. I totally forgot. Let's do it right now.
3: Have you seen the the Walgreens, I've been Walgreens.
2: vaccine ad? No, the herp its not the herpes. It's the uh, shingles one. No, oh.
3: no. Uh, it's their new charitable program. Uh, get a vaccine, give a vaccine, <laughs> and every time you get a shot at Walgreens, they plant a tree. They're, no, they're going to inject some. Poor black kid in Africa with the loving vaccine from the Gates Foundation. It's all from
2: Tom's shoes. Everybody got that idea from Tom's shoes, and I'd like to see if anybody can prove me wrong on that. I'd like to see documentary evidence of that. Familiar <laughs> with you? Familiar with
3: Tom's yes. shoes? Yeah. Yeah. That every every yeah. pair of shoes you buy, he gives one away. Yeah. Um, I wonder. Let's see. Vaccine. Uh, let's see if we can find it here
2: well I still have, I didn't bring a lot of stories this week but I brought a couple clips and I still I got another clip that we can kind of wrap once we wrap up vaccines and move on it can, it can
3: go on right at the end there do you want to uh, uh let's see you want to play the awesome video which awesome video? This commercial that I just talked about. Oh, sure. Did you put it in there? Um, let me find the right one. If you look at it from a eugenics perspective, it's so um, disturbing. Yeah. I mean, it really is. Uh, let's see. Okay, fine. Oh, I think I got, uh, it's called get a shot, give a shot Walgreens. Yeah. You got
1: it. When is your flu shot more than a flu shot? When it helps give a life-saving vaccine to a child in need in a developing country. Thanks to customers like you, Walgreens get a shot. Give a shot program has helped provide 7 million vaccines. Make your flu shot make a world of difference. Walgreens at the corner of happy and healthy.
3: All black kids. Yeah. With a, an image of the continent of Africa at the end. Yeah.
2: Good times. Good times. Yeah. Are we done with vaccines? Move on before we get our blood boiling too much. I'll take us right into another blood boiling clip.
3: Um, I was going to keep it on the medical theme for one more story, but... Do it. I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. So, it is October, uh, which means it is... Mariner's baseball season? <laughs> oh, funny. Uh, the manager you. firing season, but that's about it. No, Tim. It is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Oh, jeez. We didn't even talk about this yet. Thanks. and. We talked about this last year at this time, Uh, the NFL scam where you you they make they force all the players to wear all this pink junk armbands and everything else, then they sell it to suckers, and then they keep about uh, and then three percent of the money I think is what we we found out actually goes to research. And the rest either goes to the American Cancer Society's pocket or the NFL's pocket. So,
2: hit up the story. I'm going to search our entire article archive for some uh, breast cancer stuff.
3: Okay. A um, a former Los Angeles Times staff writer, Lori Beckland, battled breast cancer since 1996. Earlier this year, she knew her time was limited. And as she greeted her last few months, she wrote an opinion piece, As I Lay Dying, about her story. Beckland died February 8th of this year. This is what she wanted you to know about breast cancer. First, early detection does not cure cancer. Beckland, I had more than 20 mammograms, mammograms, and none of them caught my disease. In fact, we now have significant studies showing that routine mammogram screening which may result in misdiagnoses, unnecessary treatment, and radiation overexposure, can harm more people than it helps. To detect a cancer early in many cases means to catch it before it produces symptoms. That is a problem because not every precancerous condition will actually become cancer or not the type of cancer that can affect a person's life. But every case is treated as if it was the same type of cancer. Mammogram screening is responsible for about... 25% of overdiagnosis of breast cancer, according to an article published in Oxford Journals. The overdiagnosis may harm patients and lead to overuse of anti-cancer therapies, such as chemotherapy. Another article by the New England Journal of Medicine estimated that in 2008, 70,000 U.S. women were overdiagnosed with breast cancer, which is a shocking 31% of all breast cancer diagnoses. The first time Becklin discovered a lump in her breast in 1996 during a self-exam, she was treated by a lumpectomy and radiation. She had the most, quote, curable type of breast cancer. Five years after the treatment, her doctor told her that she had minimal chance of it ever coming back. Yet in 2009, she received a diagnosis of stage four breast cancer that spread to her bones, liver, lungs, and brain. Uh... Met, uh, metastic breast cancer, or MBC, is the only type of breast cancer that kills. Metastic cancer is cancer that is spread from a place where it first started to another place in the body. According to a non nonprofit, canc- nonprofit patient advocacy group, Metastic Breast Cancer Network, uh, or NBCN, breast cancer itself does not kill. Instead, breast cancer patients die from cancer cells traveling to other vital organs. Breast cancer most commonly spreads to bone, brain, liver, and lung. And in Becklin's case, it spread to all four places. When she went to an NBCN conference, other attendees were shocked that she was even alive. Almost everyone else had cancer that spread to only one organ. When later, a group of people she was in was asked to stand if they survived two years after diagnosis, most sat down. As far as she could see, Becklin was the only one standing for seven years of survival. Uh, Next point, the medical establishment fails their patients. An estimated 40,000 MBC patients die annually. Another 250,000 are waiting for their death. I say estimated because no one is required to report a uh, metastatic diagnosis. Death certificates normally report symptoms such as respiratory failure, not the actual disease. We are literally uncounted, Beckland wrote. While the Surveillance Epidemiology and End Results Program is the main source for cancer statistics, it does not take into account uh, metastatic metastatic breast cancer, according to NBCN. Sorry for my pronunciation. I can't pronounce it right now. It is however estimated up to 30% of all cases are um, metastatic. Metastatic? Yes, because it's the same word as metastasize.
2: Yeah, Metast-
3: metastatic. I don't know. It might
2: might right. be metastatic.
3: And yet are not counted. Moreover, only two percent of all breast cancer research has been estimated to go towards finding a solution for preventing or treating uh, that type of breast cancer. According to MetaVivor a nonprofit MBC Patients Advocacy Organization, um, there is no one cure. We are each in effect one person in clinical trials, yet the knowledge generated from those trials will die with us because there is no comprehensive database of metastatic breast cancer patients, Beckland wrote. While well, there is a belief that if a person lives five years after the diagnosis they are a cancer survivor, for patients with MBC that means almost nothing. Though there is a treatment, MBC is incurable, according to Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. That's in Seattle, I believe. Um, Early detection does not help MBC patients either. Another type of breast cancer that was once labeled cured by doctors often comes back years later as a stage four um, metastatic. And one type of treatment does not work for all MBC patients. Right now, while new therapies are just starting to emerge, there is little hope for survival for MBC And natural and holistic therapies that have shown promise are routinely ignored. Shocker. Next point. Susan G. Komen's mission is not helping anyone. And this is what Becklin wrote. Uh, Promise me you'll never wear a pink ribbon in my name or drop a dollar into a bucket that goes to breast cancer awareness for early detection for a cure. The mantra of fundraising juggernaut Susan G. Komen which has propagated a distorted message about breast cancer and how to cure it. I will be surprised if I find one literate person who is not aware that breast cancer exists and that it is life-threatening for many patients. We are fully aware of that fact. Now what? Okay, in other words, yes, we're aware. We get it. We don't need any more pink ribbons. Susan G. Komen's income was $287,409,269 in 2014 and allegedly 79% of that went into its programs for education, research, and support. Yet besides being aware of the money spent for over 30 years, $2.6 billion worth did little for survival rates of breast cancer that actually kills NBC. Pink is pretty, but it does not disguise the fact that metastatic breast cancer kills, reads Metaviber take Take Action page. For thousands of women and men, who are dying from NBC right now, there's a more believable and honest public awareness campaign. Um, Or that is a more believable and honest public awareness campaign. So, uh, yeah, like we talked about last year, it's a scam and it's this lady who's, who lived and lived through it and, and died from, um, Cancer, very anti American Cancer Society, Susan G. Komen, pink everything, cancer awareness garbage. So, um. I have
2: a story from our secret folder from October 2013. Two years ago.
3: Wow. We've been doing the show for two years, Tim?
2: Dude, we've been doing this show for four. Pink wash for every one hundred dollars of NFL pink merchandise sales, only three dollars and fifty-four cents goes goes towards cancer research. The NFL, meanwhile, is keeping forty-five
3: dollars. Mm. <laughs> yeah. There's be- there's better places for your money, people.
2: Absolutely. I recommend everybody watch uh, Pink Incorporated. I think it's on Netflix and probably a few other places as well. really gets into where that money is going. You ready for a pick-me-up? Yes. All right, we got a pick-me-up. Okay. All right. I don't want to do that to you. It's actually not a pick-me-up at all. But <laughs> prepare yourself. I am so hopeful. Prepare yourself.
1: Science is everywhere. In nature's beauty, in a laugh between friends, the buildings we build, and the communities we form. It's constantly wondering, asking why things are the way they are. How can we make things better? What are we in the grand scheme of the universe? It spans from the depths of space to the device you're watching this video on right now. During the Enlightenment era, scientific revolution brought ideas around calculus, atomic theory, and gravity to our world. The Industrial Revolution saw significant technological and manufacturing developments, including the first cars. And in the digital age, scientists helped spur the formation of the Internet as we know it, as a means to share research and ideas. Today, advances in medicine and agriculture have saved more lives than have been lost in all the wars in history. But despite these achievements, science and society are often at odds. Scientific discoveries like the Earth is round, that our planet revolves around the sun, or that diseases are spread through germs were all once ideas that were rejected by society. So much so that Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake for suggesting the Earth wasn't the center of the universe, and even Galileo was sentenced to house arrest for supporting the theory. Today, we see the rejection of scientific evidence for vaccinations, leading to preventable diseases like measles coming back after being wiped out in the year 2000, or the rejection of scientific evidence for climate change, despite the vast consensus among scientists. As put by Carl Sagan, we live in a society exquisitely dependent on science and technology, in which hardly anyone knows anything about science and technology. And yet, when we look to history, we see that Ignoring science has led to the crumbling of societies. Ancient Greece was a time of great learning around ideas of space, time, and light, and during the subsequent Roman Empire, these ideas were mostly embraced. However, the Romans were complacent with the learnings of the Greeks, and little innovation or exploration of new ideas around science and knowledge took place during this era. With shifting governments and values, emphasis on reason and science slipped away, and Rome eventually fell into the Dark Ages. Today, despite the voices of many supporting logic and reason, this war on science continues. In the UK, investment in publicly funded research has dropped to less than 0.5% of the GDP, the lowest it's been in two decades. This year, the US has cut at least $300 million from NASA's Earth science budget, which just happens to include climate science. Not only does this mean that existing climate studies will be ignored, but Useful data won't even be collected in the future, all to serve ideological agendas. But for what? The bank bailout in America cost more money than NASA's entire 50-year running budget, a budget that stirs imagination and visions for the future of our world and universe. In the military budget, one month of spending is equivalent to NASA's entire annual budget. Here in our home of Canada, the war on science is in full effect under Stephen Harper's Conservative government. Our science libraries, dedicated to health, environment, fisheries, and oceans, are being shut down. Laws that were once in place to ensure the protection of endangered species have been gutted, with 80% of Canada's 71 freshwater fish species currently at risk of extinction. And not only has Prime Minister Stephen Harper eliminated the National Science Advisor role, but some 2,500 federal scientists have lost their jobs. In a recent survey, 90% of government scientists felt they could not speak freely about their research, and roughly 25% say they've been forced by the government to change their research for non-scientific reasons. We're told that the remaining funds are geared towards science that has a clear commercial output, which at first glance may seem fair, research that isn't a waste of money, so to speak. But when Einstein constructed the theory of relativity, Did he know that it would lead to the development of GPS, nuclear energy, or the original television? These industries are worth billions, but focusing on commercial output is short-sighted, as science is often a slow, evolving, iterative process. Science is much more than a body of knowledge and applications. It's a way of thinking. A way to unravel the world's mysteries, see its beauty, where we can look at all the facts to make informed decisions instead of relying on preconceived notions and biases. Science doesn't choose a political party. It simply adheres to evidence. But just like good policy is supported by science, science is supported by funding and advocacy from our governments. So when you head to the polls to vote, wherever you may be, Remember that a vote for science is a vote for knowledge and progress based in reality. Look at your party's policies on science and take a stand. If you believe in the message of integrating science successfully into our societies, please share this video on Facebook, on Twitter, through email, in person, to remind the world how important science is. And subscribe for more weekly science videos.
2: Woo, science! Hello, Andrew.
3: Oh, Andrew. Sorry, I had to wake back up. There. Oh, sorry.
2: There. I thought you might oh. be asleep. I thought you might be asleep. I didn't notice it, but uh, I think that might have been a, uh, a video by the uh, Labor Party in the in the in Canada. The the, the and they
3: won, man. That took him to the election. Woo!
2: That was the most popular video on YouTube, like four out of five days last week. So I saw it on the front page numerous times, and finally watched it. it was just like, oh.
3: Gosh, are you that was worse than the when the what the bleep do we know movie was all popular.
2: This one, though, if you know, I liked in the middle of that one. The second time through, I noticed that they said that ninety percent of scientists had said that they had changed uh, what they thought of. According, yeah, for political. political
3: reasons, it's like yeah, they did. Yeah,
2: I'm sure they did, and I'm sure that they weren't <laughs> changing it from being climate deniers to climate change experts. Uh, actually wait maybe that is what they were doing um yes so science man vote for science it's not it's not about politics but you know the conservative party's bad so uh, vote for science uh liberal party
3: uh okay well on a related story (laughs) you got nothing on that one no i i do all right uh Top physicist Freeman Dyson says Obama has picked the wrong side on climate change. Ah, there we go. You ever heard of Freeman Dyson? I have not. Have you ever heard of Bill Nye? I have. Who do you think is the better scientist?
2: Well, Bill Nye the science guy taught me stuff when I was in grade school and he has a television show. So, obviously.
3: And he's pro uh, global warming propaganda hardcore.
2: And he's from Seattle,
3: <coughs> so huh? it's interesting. It' interesting. He's he gets so we see tons of uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy, and I, to be honest, I'd never heard of this guy either. But listen to his. Uh, it talks about his resume a little bit in here. Uh, the climate models used by alarmist scientists to predict global warming are getting worse, not better. Carbon dioxide is far more good than harm, and President Obama has backed the wrong side in the war on climate change. So says one of the world's greatest theoretical physicists, Dr. Freeman Dyson. The British-born naturalized American citizen who worked at Princeton University as a contemporary of Einstein and has advised the U.S. government on a wide range of scientific and technical issues. In an interview with Andrew Orlovsky of the Register, Dyson expressed his despair that the... um, at the current scientific obsession with climate change, which he says is not a scientific mystery, but a human mystery. How does it happen that a whole gen- generation of scientific experts is blind to the obvious p- facts? <laughs> well, I can answer that question for you. Money. Yeah. The, um, this mystery, says Dyson, can only partly be explained in terms of follow the money. Also to blame, he believes, is a kind of collective yearning for apocalyptic doom i can buy that uh it is true that there's a large community of people who make their money by scaring the public so money is certainly involved to some extent but i don't think that's the full explanation it's like a 100 years ago before world war one there was this insane craving for doom which in a way helped cause world war one people like the poet rupert brooke were glorifying wars an escape from the dullness of modern life there was the feeling we'd gone soft and degenerate and war would be good for us all. That was in the air leading up to World War One, and in some ways it's in the air today. Dyson, himself a long-standing Democratic, Democrat voter, is especially disappointed by his chosen party's unscientific stance on the climate change issue. It's very sad that in this country, political opinion parted. Um, I'm 100% Democrat myself, and I like Obama, but he took the wrong side on this issue and the Republicans took the right side. Part of the problem, he says, so it's kind of interesting that the one issue he really knows about, he's on the opposite side, but he still likes Obama. Right. That's interesting. Uh, Part of the problem, he says, is the Democrats' conflation of pollution, a genuine problem with climate change, a natural phenomenon quite beyond mankind's ability to control. And that's something we've talked about. There are real environmental issues, but Carbon dioxide is not one of them. Uh, Raping Central America is. Yes. Uh, China and India rely on coal to keep growing, so they'll they'll clearly be burning coal in huge amounts. They need that to get rich. Whatever the rest of the world agrees to, China and India will continue to burn coal, so the discussion is quite pointless. At the same time, coal is very unpleasant stuff, and there are problems with with coal quite apart from climate. I remember in England, when we burned coal, everything was filthy. It was really bad, and that's the way it is now in China. But you clean that up, as we did in England. It takes a certain amount of political willpower, and that takes time. Pollution is quite separate to the climate problem. One can be solved and the other cannot, and the public doesn't understand that. The short-to-medium-term solution to the pollution problem, he argues, is the replacement of coal with the much-maligned shale gas, whose rejection by much of Europe he finds unfathomable and counterproductive. As far as the next 50 years are concerned, there are two main forces of energy, which are coal and shale gas. Emissions have been going down in the U.S. while they've uh, been going up in Europe, and that's because of shale gas. It's only half the carbon dioxide emissions of coal. China may, in fact, be able to develop shale gas on a big scale, and that means they burn a lot less coal. It seemed complete madness to prohibit shale gas. You wonder if climate change is an anglophone uh, preoccupation. Well, France yes. is even more dogma. <laughs> yes, more dogmatic than Britain about shale gas. Uh, Dyson ninety one has enjoyed a long, distinguished career as a physicist, mathematician, and public intellectual, showing promise as early as the age of five when he calculated the number of atoms in the sun. <laughs> the age of five. Ugh. Uh, he must not have been watching TV as a child. Uh, during World War Two, he. Worked at the Operation Research section of the Royal Air Force Bomber Command before moving to the US where Robert Oppenheimer awarded him a permanent post at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. He also worked at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory looking at the climate system twenty five years ago before it became a hot political issue. The dangers of carbon dioxide he believes have been much overrated. In a foreword to a report for the Global Warming Policy Foundation by Endur Kogoklani called Carbon Dioxide the Good News as reported. Uh, here, he says, to any unprejudiced person reading this account, the facts should be obvious, that the non-climactic effects of carbon dioxide as as a sustainer of wildlife and crop plants are enormously beneficial, that the possibly harmful climactic effects of carbon dioxide have been greatly exaggerated, and that the benefits clearly outweigh the possible damage. I consider myself an unprejudiced person And to me, these facts are obvious, but the same facts are not obvious to the majority of scientists and politicians who consider carbon dioxide to be evil and dangerous. The people who are supposed to be experts and who claim to understand the science are precisely the people who are blind to the evidence. He likens the climate change issue to some of the other irrational beliefs promoted through history by famous thinkers and adopted by loyal loyal disciples. Sometimes, as in the use of bleeding as a treatment for various diseases, irrational belief did harm to a large number of human victims. George Washington was one of the victims. Other irrational beliefs, such as the phlogiston theory of burning or the Aristotelian cosmology of circular celestial motions, only did harm by delaying the careful examination of nature. In all these cases, we see a community of people happily united in a false belief that brought leaders and followers together. Anyone who questioned the prevailing belief would upset the peace of the community. Dyson's refusal ever to accommodate himself with the modest notions of the hour may explain why, unlike some of his less distinguished and brilliant contemporaries over the years, he has never been awarded a Nobel Prize. Yes, unlike Al Gore, he does not have a Nobel Prize. Or Barack Obama, for that matter. He concludes, I'm hoping that the scientists and politicians who have been blindly demonizing carbon dioxide for 30, for 37 years will one day open their eyes and look at the evidence. Uh, so, I thought that was interesting. But, I guess he doesn't really count as a scientist? No. Yeah. No. You know. He takes, I mean, takes the wrong stance. He's, he's no Bill Nye. I mean, he was... He was just calculating the number of atoms in the sun at the age of five. I mean, Bill Nye,
2: like, the sound effects. Bill Nye did a kid's show and used to work for Boeing. Yeah. I'm just going to keep rolling. We just got to get through these. I don't want to let any of these go. They're all pretty good. Anti-abortion activist Troy Newman to be deported after losing court bid to stay in Australia. Anti-abortion activist Troy Newman has lost his high court bid to stay in Australia and could be deported as early as this weekend. Mr. Newman flew into Melbourne from the United States on Thursday despite having his visa revoked by the Immigration Department. His lawyers tried unsuccessfully to appeal that decision in the high court in Melbourne. On Friday afternoon, Justice Jeffrey Nettle ruled the department was justified in revoking Mr. Newman's visa over fears that... his visit would pose a risk to the community justice nettle ruled that mr newman may have a cause to challenge for refusal but said he should not have boarded a plane to australia knowing that his visa had been canceled acting as he did means Uh, means he does come he does not come to this court with clean hands mr newman had no right to Treat the law as not. Mr. Newman is is the head of an anti-abortion organization, Operation Rescue, and was due to speak in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Hobart, and Cairns over the next fortnight at events run by the group Right to Life in Australia. I have been to Hobart, Tasmania, the real reason I wanted to read that story. Now, he is the co-author <laughs> of the book, Their Blood Cries Out, which was published in 2000. In the book, he, he questions why doctors who perform abortions are not executed and asks why women or men who request the procedure are not charged with murder. Government seeks to expedite Mr. Newman's deportation. In a statement, the immigration minister said that he instructed the department to expedite Mr newman's removal from australia any person who enters in australia without a valid visa does not have a lawful basis to that was sent to us by a listener to this show from australia
3: yes he's committing thought crimes
2: thought crime While we're on this, I don't know if you knew about this, I just read about it. It was one of the more shocking things to discover that happened ever in this country. Did you read the George Stinney who he is? No. Okay, prepare yourself, buddy. Ready? George Junius Stinney Jr., born October 21st, 1929, died June 16th, 1944, was at age 14 the youngest person executed in the United States in the 20th century. Stinney, an African-American youth from South Carolina, was convicted in a two-hour trial of first-degree murder of 2 preteen white girls, 11-year-old Betty June Binnaker and 8-year-old Mary Emma Thames. Thames. However, no physical evidence existed in the case, and the sole evidence against Stinney was the circumstantial fact that Stinney had threatened the girls shortly before their murder and the testimony of three police officers that Stinney had confessed. He was then executed by an electric chair. Since Stinney's conviction and execution... The question of his guilt, the validity of his confession and the judicial process leading to his execution have been criticized as suspicious at best and a miscarriage of justice at worst. On December 17th, his conviction was post uh, posthumously, no <laughs> oh, Posthumously. thank you. Now I can't yeah. <laughs> pronounce words. Posthumously vacated 70 years after his execution. Da, 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 da. Ready for the worst part? The execution of George Stinney was carried out at Central Corrections Institute in Columbia on June 16, 1944, at 7.30 p.m. Stinney walked to the execution chamber with a Bible under his arm, which he later used as a booster seat to sit in the electric chair. Standing at 5 feet 1 inch tall and weighing at just over 90 pounds his size, presented difficulties in securing him to the frame and holding the electrodes to him. Also, the state's adult-sized face mask did not fit him, and he was hit with the first 20. 400 volts of electricity the mask covering his face slipped off revealing his wide open tearful eyes and saliva coming from his mouth after two more jolts of electricity the boy was dead during the execution the surge of electricity made Stinney's body shake and and his left hand broke free from the buckle holding him down Stinney was declared dead within four minutes of the initial electrocution from the time of the murders until Stinney's execution only 83 days had passed there's the united states government and that my friends is not even that long
3: ago uh, no. And reading further down, someone else confessed to the crime. There you go. Yeah. Ugh.
2: Beauty. Do you want to do the 15 U.S. soldiers? What What's that about? Uh,
3: 15 U.S. soldiers were asked, what assumptions did you have about the Afghan war that turned out to be completely wrong?
2: You want to just read them?
3: Yeah. Um... Number one, it is hard enough taking the life of an absolute enemy wearing a uniform. Now you need to kill someone who may or may not be a real enemy, or maybe one part time, or maybe one because some other a hole has a gun to his kid's head. It is a sad cluster of a mess. Um, two, they told us we were going to fight the Taliban, but it turns out there's no way to know who is Taliban, or what Taliban is, or what they look like. Amen. A guy will be bringing his kid to your clinic.
2: What's that? It just became racist. I mean, uh, they were always referred to, them and Iraqi insurgents were always referred to during my time in the military, and I mean almost always as just
3: towel heads. Mm -hmm. A guy will be bringing his kid to your clinic one day, then shooting at you the next. You'll make friends with the kid on, on an airdrop and then see that kid slit another kid's throat on patrol a week later. There is no enemy and no goal. The people don't even understand who you are or why they're there. Many of them believed we were invulnerable demons. One elder tested this theory by sending a small child to try and stab me in the back with a knife, which was made by welding a blade onto an old 50 cal casing. Uh, kids dig up mines, bouncing beddies, and old Russian munitions and set them off like firecrackers. The Place is an effed-up maelstrom with no conceivable sense of morality, justice, benevolence, or community. Every single person is just trying to survive. Three, uh, that they had any idea why we were there. We'd ask them if they knew what 9-11 was, and they had no idea. We'd show them pictures of the World Trade Center on fire after the planes hit and ask them what it was. Their response was usually that it was a picture of a building the U.S. bombed in Kabul. (laughs) Their capital. (laughs) Kind of ironic there. Kind of mind-blowing that they're being occupied by a foreign military force and have no idea why. Number four, that Afghanistan was an actual country. It's only so on a map. People in some of the more rural places, at least, have no concept of Afghanistan. We were in a village in northern Kandahar province talking to some people who, of course, had no idea who we were or why we were there. This was in 2004. Not only had they not heard about 9-11, they hadn't heard Americans had come over. Talking to them further, they hadn't even heard about that one time the Russians were in Afghanistan either. We then asked if they knew where the city of Kandahar was, which is a rather large and important city some 30 miles to the south. They'd heard heard of it, but no one had ever been there, and they didn't know uh, where it was. For them, there was no Afghanistan. The concept just didn't exist. Five, I heard of it. An Australian special forces patrol that went into the mountains and came across an isolated Afghan village. They thought the newcomers were the Soviets. No idea that one war had ended and another one had started. <laughs> Six, about the fighting we did. I had in my mind that it would be these organized ambushes against a somewhat organized force. It may have been like that for the, the push uh, but once the initial defense was scattered, the fighting turned into some farmer getting paid a year's salary to go fire an AK-47 in our patrol as we walked by. I mean, no wonder there was so much PTSD going around. It doesn't feel okay when you killed some farmer for trying to feed his kids or save his family from torture that next night. It feels like crap, actually. Uh 7. Most Afghans are polyglots. Uh, many of the most rural, uneducated, near-medieval living people could speak three or more different languages. We were briefed that there were two languages spoken in Afghanistan, Pashto and Dari. In fact, there are dozens of unique languages. Each isolated valley and village had their own language. Some sound very Persian. Some sounded like archaic Greek. There was a village in the north that sounded like a tone language. My team tried to record as many local languages as we could, we had Terps ask questions in Pashto and had them answer in their local language. Unfortunately, cultural mapping was considered intelligence gathering and all our recordings were classified. <laughs> so somewhere at the NSA, there are recordings in soon to be dead languages asking a village elder to share the oldest story they could remember about his village. That one. It, that's so sick. Um. Yes. Glad the NSA has that. Uh, I expected everything to be desert and mountains, but I spent as much time in orchards as I did anywhere else while I was there. Also, a lot of people didn't want us there any more than they wanted the Taliban there. Uh, ultimately, they just wanted to be left alone to live their lives. Number nine, that we would be fighting the Taliban. The majority of people we managed to detain had been coerced into shooting at us by the Mujahideen, which is made up of all sorts of people who had kidnapped or threatened their family. The most glaring example of this was when our forward operating base was attacked by a massive truck bomb that blew a hole in our wall. Suicide bombers ran into the forward operating base through the hole and blew themselves up in our bunkers. Every single one of them had their hands tied in remote detonation receivers so they couldn't back out. Soldiers, uh, number 10, soldiers tend to train for fighting at sub-500 meters. At least I always had. Not being able to see the enemy wasn't completely out of the norm for training but they were usually within the effective range of our small arms. Come to Afghanistan, and we were getting fired up by invisible enemies on the side of mountains a kilometer plus away. We hardly knew we were getting engaged, let alone went into contact, into contact drills. Number 11, their concept of food. In their culture, if anyone had food, they were to share it with everyone around them. This is even if you only have enough for one person to have a snack. It was almost as if they didn't believe food could be owned by a person. Some of the Afghans I worked with would be offended if I ate anything and didn't offer them some. I guess also that I would actually be working with with some Afghans. I didn't expect that to be a thing. Uh, Twelve, that it was all arid desert. At one point in my deployment, my team had to dig irrigation trenches because our tents were flooded past our ankles. At another point in my deployment, I was trudging through what was essentially a jungle. Thirteen, that everyone was going to be dirty and poor like in those Help a Poor Starving Child commercials. I remember being really surprised to see kids running around playing in dirt roads and everyone was clean. No dirt smudges on their face or anything. Also, there are these two little girls with the most unbelievably white dresses I've ever seen, standing by the side of the road watching our convoy roll by. Very surreal. Uh, Fourteen, we're almost done with these. That it was really a war. It's just People sustaining other people with a lot of nothing actually getting done. As someone who was a gunner for most of my tour, we mainly did transportation missions from Kabul to the eastern province. We never saw any action, and to this day I thank God for that. The fact that a lot of my time outside the convoys was spent either sleeping, eating, or gaming surprised me, I suppose. But in the end, we're just there to provide presents and not expected to actually accomplish anything. The amount of rewards given out back in Kabul for people simply hitting a high quota of maintenance repairs threw me off, too. There were times when I was looking down, looked down upon for not working every day in a shop and instead being on convoys. The worst part of it all was losing a friend to suicide after returning home safe. That was something I never expected to see happen, and it still messes with me to this day. Uh, all right. Uh, 15, this is the last one. I was mortuary affairs in 2008 during my first deployment to Afghanistan, and I really had no idea what I was getting myself into. I never had to fight, but I was constantly dealing with the remains of 18- to 22-year-old soldiers that had been blown into pieces or burned alive due to HMEs and IEDs. Seeing your fellow soldiers and countrymen brutally killed in such a way that it is easy to see as cowardly turning me into a budding racist pretty quickly i hated the islamic religion and the people in afghanistan and i had an opinion similar to the whole just nuke them all mentality but one day we were called to the hospital on base to remove a dead civilian local national which we often did if they died in our hospital or on base and it turned out to be a three-year-old little girl who was shot with ak-47 fire at fairly close range her father followed us to the morgue as we had to get his permission to take her into our care because we were males and all that, and he didn't seem particularly bothered by his daughter's violent murder, in my opinion. It wasn't until we placed her into a handmade casket and draped the Afghanistan flag onto it that his emotions came out. When we began to load the casket into the back of a truck to transport her off base, he lost it and collapsed onto the casket containing the little girl. We were holding her at the time, so we nearly lost it. We we're, were able to set her down as he gripped the flag in the casket and wailed louder than any wailing I, I would ever see. I don't know if you've ever seen a grown man truly cry as if he'd just lost everything, but it's surprising how much it affects you. I realized in this moment how wrong I was about everything. So, Dude. so one of... Uh, one of our things on this show is that instead of, uh, you know, waving flags and uh, thanking people for their service, we should actually talk to U.S. soldiers. So I thought that was uh, an interesting article because that's what it was. It was people telling uh, false assumptions they had had about what it would be like in Afghanistan. So,
2: Well, you can't play those before. NFL games?
3: No. No.
2: I have to end it on a light note. We're skipping that one clip I had. It'd just be too forced, plus it's a little late. But we have to end on a light note. This was sent to us, and it was just a simple... I don't remember if it was a tweet or an email, but it was just, enjoy. I think the subject was for your show. The the, uh, article was linked below, and there was one word that just said enjoy. Eight things you don't want to know about TSA checkpoints from crack.com. Number eight, it's the easiest way to become a federal officer. It's not easy to become a federal officer if you want to join the FBI, CIA, or DEA. For example, you're going to need a four-year degree plus a lot of professional qualifications and experience. But if you don't have time to gain all that pesky experience and pain-in-the-butt knowledge, you can always try joining the TSA. TSA screeners aren't law enforcement officers, but if you work with the TSA for several years, you do qualify for their interchange agreement with the Department of Homeland Security, which means the guy growling at you to take your flip-flops off before stepping through the body scanner might just be a couple years away from running the (laughs) X-Files. Our source originally applied to the TSA because he saw it as the shortest possible path to a career as a federal officer. I applied because, well, for people without any sort of real job experience, they're the only federal agency that'll pick you up. There are no real requirements to get in. You need a year of security experience or a high school diploma. In other words, high school dropouts could protect us from getting terrorists right now. I say could be, but really what I mean is are. One of my earliest supervisors had no diploma or freaking GED. Yep. He's still there and still no GED. You don't learn freedom. You learn... You feel freedom. Don't need to go to any fancy book reading for that. So you drop out of high school and spend a year guarding the Cinnabon at your local mall and you too can join the probably thicker than we need blue line. Our source wound up working for the TSA for a startlingly long time considered the agency's sky-high turnover rate. I was with them for nearly 10 years. I was there from the beginning... Where they didn't know what the heck they were doing to the end where they still don't know what the heck they are doing. Number seven. We no longer care about the weapons that made 9-11 possible. Remember when the TSA announced that they'll finally be, uh, that they were finally going to allow people to bring tiny pocket knives on planes again? Fans of Wii blades and a few, uh, excuse me. ...had a few sweet weeks before the TSA reversed that decision and reinstated the ban. But according to our source, TSA upper management has shifted a lot of emphasis away from policing little knives. They wanted us to focus more on larger things that could bring planes down. Larger things like explosive, for instance. This sounds perfectly reasonable on the outside, but our source made a good point. 9-11 happened because of a bunch of guys with box cutters. Those guys get through on an hourly basis. (laughs) Most of the actual scanning of your carry-on luggage is done by machines, which are programmed to discern things like explosives and firearms uh, from harmless stuff like uh, dildos, scale models, or Boba Fett, and dildos molded molded to look like Boba Fett. These scanning machines also have test programs, which periodically quiz the operators, and what happens when you fail one of these random tests? Miss three of them, and you go back to remedial training, which is so, so boring. This is a bomb, true or false. With all due respect to our source, we're (laughs) have we more concerned with the fact that TSA Screener is allowed to miss three fake bombs or guns before facing any kind of punishment. Our our source also worried that an obsession with not failing uh, those tests and thus not going to the boring remedial training causes agents to miss the real threats. They might miss knives because they're so focused on missing out on those built-in tests. Sure you let the guys with the box cutters through, but I try to bring my alarm clock and wire collection through and suddenly it's suspicious. Since our source has a broad range of TSA experience, we asked if he noticed any improvements in the agency over the last decade because at this point, we're kind of terrified at even driving past an airport. I might have to think about this one for a bit. I know there have been improvements in the software for the machines. The software are a lot better at detecting actual potential threats. And training, no, that hasn't really changed at all we're terrible at racial profiling. Profiling, gender profiling, on the other hand, racial profiling by the TSA is a real problem. Just ask anybody with a slick suntan who's had the audacity to try and fly in the United States. But our source thinks the focus on racial profiling is overblown, not because profiling doesn't happen, because the worst profiling he's seen has nothing to do with race. I witnessed myself to, uh, detection officers, uh, I witnessed myself, detection officers, who would pull very attractive women aside because he had a reasonable suspicion to search carry-on bags. A push-up bra? Ma'am, do you know it's a felony to lie to a TSA agent? Our source clarified that he saw this on several different occasions with several different officers. It became a running joke at the checkpoint. Oh, look who I pulled aside this time. You've been randomly selected for additional screening. I can see you making air quotes. (laughs) Our our source isn't the only person who's brought this up as a problem. Multiple women have come forward alleging the TSA targeted them for repeated inspection, with at least one woman claiming the inspections came after an agent uh, commented on her cute figure. A Freedom of Information request revealed this formed a pattern of complaints against the TSA. I don't care what you say, you just wanted to see what was in her bag or find some embarrassing sex toy. Hey, Boba Fett is not only a toy, he's a sculpture, and practically a work of art. Oh, you mean the dildo? Fair enough. Officers absolutely traded pictures of your body parts. Hey, remember a few years back when a bunch of TSA agents got busted for sharing naked pictures of passengers taken uh, by the full body scanners? So does our source. It goes along with the fact that TSA requires no experience and the the people they hire are young 20-something-year-old guys that don't understand the concept of privacy. I've personally witnessed that happen on more than one occasion. The TSA rule states you can bring your cell phone into any, or you can't bring your cell phone in any x-ray room. It doesn't matter if it was in their pockets. Nobody, not the supervisors, would check. They'd be bringing their cell phones in. It was pretty much just a blatant disregard for policy. He even had several coworkers try to show him naked pictures. I didn't go as far as I should have. Just said, like, I'm not interested. But I have kind of glanced when I, uh, when, but I have kind of glanced when a phone is shoved in your face. It's hard not to. I did see a couple. Yep, those are gray mannequin breasts. Ah, yes, the forbidden allure of washed-out, pixelated ghost genitals. Who could resist? Um, and number four, I haven't been reading the numbers. No one on the job actually cares about security. Whenever a story breaks on the TSA, the most I have ever done is this thing thing called a TSA announcement typed up by some analysts in DC with the director's signature copy and pasted on the bottom. There was a recent news story about TSA checkpoints letting undercover auditors sneak fake bombs on the airplanes at an astonishing 67 out of 70 times. turns out airport security is not as secure as your favorite blankie. Less so, actually. At least if you know your blankie has a bomb in it. The TSA has been taking and failing those tests for a while. Our source underwent these tests, too, conducted by the so-called red teams. His coworkers were similarly ineffective at catching a single thing. When I was working, our own airport had that team come through, and every single checkpoint failed. There was a meeting at the checkpoint. Oh, the red team check in. We failed three out of four tests. Then they just go do something else. <laughs> Probably no lesson to be learned here. Forget I even mentioned it. Our source explained... <laughs> <laughs> how this co-workers could go so uh miss so many opportunities when i was working there the guy operating the x-ray machine is supposed to be focusing fully on the machine but he's just kind of talking to his buddy next to him talking to the passengers and then terrifyingly added people who text and drive pay more attention to the road than some of these guys that do on the x-rays number three drugs are not a major concern if you're looking to smuggle a crotch load of acid from memphis to minneapolis We've got the good news for you. TSA is not a drug enforcement agency, they're not the DEA, and they're not authorized to even look for drugs. What does that mean in practice? Let's say a guy has a bag of weed sitting on his bag. Sure, we'll notify the sheriff that he has a suspicious object here, but if he stashed it in his shoe, not that I condone that, or that it isn't seen by the TSA, they can they can't look for it with the purpose of looking for drugs. If we do, the court will throw it out, and there's no reasonable cause." That's interesting there. Just put air freshener. I'm not (laughs) just put air freshener. I'm not filling out that paperwork. Our source and his coworkers were required to let the sheriff's department know when they found something suspicious, but they usually ignored the call when it was something they considered silly, such as a single bullet or even a single fired bullet, just the casing. And in those, the sheriff showed up, but they're pissed. What's the guy going to do with a fired shell casing? Shockingly, a lot of people haven't got the message that you can't ever fly with guns in your (laughs) carry-on. There have been a whole lot of guns. And where I'm at, there's not a lot of people who own guns. This isn't their their carry-on. It's not a handbag that they carry daily. It's some suitcase specifically for flying. And when the gun is found, they're like, oh, I didn't know that was in there. Those are found way more often than I like to think of. I didn't even see it in there. Our source also noted that TSA isn't actually allowed to confiscate items without the traveler voluntarily abandoning them, and if, if that seemed was weird to you, there are no official rules for most things. Number two, our source noted the TSA operates operatives are allowed to use judgment, but as he also noted that this judgment didn't matter much. Can they take this through the checkpoint? Shoot, I don't know. Let's ask the manager. Who'd say no? I guess you can't take that particular pie and then, ew, pumpkin, give that, give him a cavity search just for that. Speaking of pie, if it's frozen, that's fine. That, I never understood. See, because frozen pie isn't a liquid. That's discrimination against pie lovers, but the double standards don't end there. We had a lot of short flights, and people sometimes bring coolers on with food, water, and drinks. They're always allowed those blue ice packs, the reusable ones, and if those are frozen solid, they can't they can go through the checkpoint. If they're not frozen solid, they can't go through the checkpoint. It's like, okay, if it's frozen, it's okay. But if it's not frozen, it's now a dangerous thing that could blow up. It just never made sense. Wait, I can see some water around the ice in that in that bottle. God help us all. A source we all had from an article a couple years back, a former Israeli head of airport security termed what the TSA... Does is security theater. We asked our source if he felt any safer while flying, based on his many years of experience as an agent, and he told us, it's only the illusion of security, number one. You know, I do. Not because of what they're doing, but because of the fact that they're there. Like those houses with a sticker that says, protected by so-and-so alarm company, but there's no alarm in the house. I don't know if that's a definition of security theater. It is. But if there are terrorists who still want to attack airlines... They'd look at the, air, at the checkpoints at either uh, still want to attack airlines. They'd look at the checkpoints and either take out the checkpoint or just move on. Even though the TSA gets crap for not finding explosives, I'm sure whoever wants to do harm at least has a chance of getting caught. And maybe their mission won't be worth the risk. Plus, I have to take my shoes off, and I got this odor thing, and, okay, we're slightly less optimistic, especially in light of the fact that our source told us, the question I've had since day one that no one answers, if you find something suspicious at a bag at a checkpoint, and it's obviously a threat, you see it's a pipe bomb, a little movie alarm clock wrapped in dynamite, my question was, okay, we find this, and then what? If it's actually a terrorist, and he's obviously not in his right mind, he's going to throw he's not going to throw up his hands and defeat, what do we do? I got no answer to the question, if we find a bomb, what's next? This is actually the same question former head of airport security for Israel's Ben Gurion Airport asked us, if the TSA ever finds a bomb, what next? So far, no one we talked to has had an answer to that absolutely terrifying question. Okay, we're not finished with you TSA experts, we can't be fooled, blah 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 blah. So, just to recap, since I did mess up the, the numbers there, uh, number... number eight the easiest way to become a federal it's the easiest way to become a federal officer number seven we no longer care about the weapons made 9-11 possible number six we're terrible at racial profiling but gender profiling goes on officers absolutely traded naked pictures of people uh that's number five number four No one at the job actually cares about security. Number three, drugs are not a major concern. Number two, there are no official rules for most things. And number one, it's only the illusion of security. Yay, TSA.
3: (laughs) You got nothing on that one? Ugh. It's, uh... I wish I was surprised, Tim.
2: <laughs> Should I end it, end it with our I, femi- feminist clip, since you don't seem to be entertained by that?
3: I don't know if uh, you have to be more naive to believe in Santa Claus, or the TSA keep, is keeping us safe.
2: Meanwhile, this is what takes place on the airwaves.
0: <laughs> that was great. Yeah. seemingly we were very surprised that he would come to Hillary's aid like that, but isn't it nice to see them going at the issues rather than the same old, you know, going dog and pony BS? I thought that Bernie was so menschy in that moment, like a real guy. It, I actually am aroused by him. <laughs> I, mean, I'm I'm I find, do find him to be
3: eye candy, not ear he candy, not eye. ear candy, eye candy. I like a, an
1: old Jewish guy who's a socialist. That's my type of guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody's talking uh, about O'Malley and how hot he was, uh, but to well, me, Bernie to is hot. O'Malley, I am absol- we'll get to O'Malley, because there are some pictures, ladies. Everyone, gird your loins. That Martin <laughs> O'Malley, let me tell you something. Oh, they're here already. If I wasn't voting with here. my head, I think we know who'd be getting my vote, because I am <laughs>
0: in love. Look at his abs.
1: His That's boobs. That's no dad bod. But those are boobs, aren't they? Take no, those are not boobs. Those are those not boobs. Those, not those are rock-hard ta- man things.
3: Pure class. <laughs> trying, to,
2: trying to slowly kill you as the show goes on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew? Hello, Andrew. Hello. <laughs> Hello, Andrew. What if two, the only thing I'll say about that clip, which I guess was on The View, what if two men spoke that way about a female candidate?
3: Um, they would get taken off the air.
2: <laughs> for objectifying. Objectifying. Yes. Do you have words of wisdom for us?
3: Don't ask your two year old if she loves her blankie or you more. You might not like the answer.
2: (laughs) That's awesome words of wisdom. Thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you for ending on a high note. Sorry for all the tough stories this week. Everybody go out there. Have a good week. It's going to be an awesome week. God loves you all. We'll talk to you later.
0: A copy of this podcast as well as links to each story covered are available at revelationsradionews.com. To contact Andrew and Tim or to support Revelations Radio News, please visit revelationsradionews.com and click on the contact tab or support tab. Please check out the other podcasts at revelationsradionetwork.com. And thank you for your support of this podcast.
3: My dad used to go on Sunday mornings to the, uh, to the donut shop, and he would bring back a, a big bunch of donuts, but there would always be a couple of chocolate donuts. I'd take the chocolate donuts and lick them and put them back in the box.